Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. God, we, uh, we acknowledge you are the way maker. We acknowledge that everything our heart seeks is found in you. And I realize we have everyone in this room, God, everyone that you know. We might not know all that's in their hearts, but you do. They're not here by accident. People are here who don't know anything about you. People are here who maybe have heard things about God or about those Christians and they're a little skeptical. People are here who are learning to to put the full weight of their souls onto you. Lord, I just pray that right now that they would know and fill in their spirit that, um, that they are welcome here by you, that they're welcome here by us, that they're not here on accident, and that you want to meet them today. You want to open their eyes to maybe something bigger that's happening in this world than they realize. And so we bless you, God. We thank you. Um, would you speak through me, and would you allow us to leave this space changed? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are kicking off a brand new series for the next two months that we are titling Lies We Love and How They're Killing Us. It is February. We're in February, which is the national, I guess, month of love. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's some sick psychology by the capitalist. Because if you think about it, like really think about it, February is pretty much the worst month of the year. Anyone hate February in here? Yeah. February's the worst. No, if you were born in February, I apologize, but you probably agree with me, you know? Um, like, you're, you're a month removed from the holidays, so the holiday, the, the joy and the buzz is worn off, and you still got a solid two months before spring. It is cold, it is dreary, so I'm pretty sure uh, the sick capitalists are like, well, what do we do so people can buy stuff? Let's make a national holiday of love. And um, so we're, we're sort of rolling with that a little bit. We're rolling with that. And as you can tell from the, the, the sermon series title, we're not pulling any punches. We believe that there are narratives in our society around relationships. And just to be clear, I'm not just talking about romantic relationships, okay? I'm talking about the full gamut of relationships. I'm talking about romance. I'm talking about friendship. I'm talking about colleagues. I'm talking about siblings. Just relationship. And we believe that there are narratives in our society that are problematic. And not just problematic, that are killing us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I also want to contend that this is just because God says something about it. I want to contend that the narratives that we're receiving about relationships from a humanistic perspective aren't working. As evidenced by the increase, as I talked last week, of anxiety, depression, suicide, and deaths by despair, deaths by alcohol abuse, uh, drug abuse. Like it's not working. The narratives we're receiving of this is how we relate with one another isn't working. So what we want to do over this next bit of time is examine these narratives, examine this advice we're receiving from society, and then hold it up against what God might say about relationship and say, which one sort of works better? Which one sort of fills my soul, fills my heart, makes me, um, leads me to abundance and flourishing better? If you've been with us, you know that the word we're focusing on this year is discipleship, which is a church word. At its, at its essence, all it means is to be an apprentice. So when you're an apprentice of somebody, you live with them. You eat like they eat. You learn to think like they think, 
to love what they love, to talk like they talk. You immerse yourself in their wisdom and their knowledge. That's what we're doing. We're saying that God, as the ground of being, as the creator, knows something about relationships. And we see this through Jesus, God in flesh. And just a little, like, mini theology lesson. Um, one of the, the tenets of the Christian faith, the doctrine, is that God is something called triune. He's trinity. And if you think about that, it's the idea that God is one substance, but within that one substance, there are three distinct persons that are loving each other. That's how we can say God is love. And we can teach a class on that. I saw some of your eyes just glaze over right there. But, what, but at its core, what I want to suggest is that if God is the creator, and if God is three in one, then the core of our universe is intimacy. The core of our hearts, of our very being, is relationship. So perhaps God knows a thing or two about healthy relationships. And maybe you're here and you're like, look, I tried the God thing. It didn't work for me. I want to sort of suggest that you haven't really tried it. <laughs> I was talking with Bryant, who's our executive pastor the other day, and he said something that his, um, one of his professors in seminary said that I thought was brilliant, where he says, Christianity is a fabulous noun and a horrible adjective. <laughs> and it's true if you think about it. The gospel, Christianity, when it's the core of who we are, it does something profound. When it tries to describe something else, it leaves a really bitter taste in your mouth. Here's what I mean. So some of you are like, look, I tried the God thing growing up. It wasn't for me. I want to push back and say, perhaps you didn't really try Christianity. Perhaps you tried something like Christian nationalism, which means the, the core of what you were ingesting was a view of the nation state moving a certain direction. And maybe they threw God language on top of it or baptized it in Jesus vernacular, but you weren't really ingesting the gospel. Or maybe what you've tried is Christian individualism. So the core of what we're, what we're believing, of what we're eating, is this idea of the individual as supreme. And we baptize it in Jesus' language. So what I want to suggest, what we're going to do over these next couple weeks, is say what would it look like if God, if Christ, is the core of what we're receiving about relationships? I want to suggest that we might actually consider and try God's version of these. And one last thing before we jump into today's. Notice, these are lies we love. <laughs> we love these lies. They're like jalapeno Cheetos. They're not going to make us healthy, but man, they taste good. Come on. These are lies we love. So I might present something that sounds like, oh man, that's good, but it's the narratives we're receiving from society are not gonna go without a fight. Keep that in mind as we jump into this. And just one other plug, I would encourage you to join a table because our tables, our small groups are gonna be discussing this stuff, this content throughout the week. So it'll be a great way for you to, to get together and uh, celebrate and bemoan how hard relationships is. All right? So today's lie, lie number one that we are tackling today is the lie that romantic relationships make me whole. Romantic relationships make me whole. Now you might hear that and your first thought is, Psh, that's not me. I don't believe that. 
I am 100% what Lizzo says I am, you know? I don't need a romantic relation. I don't need some man or some woman to make me whole. Let's address that first before we go further, all right? So there's a psychologist named Jean Twenge, and uh, she has really become known for her studying of generations. And so she wrote a, a recent book called iGen, looking at the current generation coming out of college into the workforce. And usually, uh, whatever generation is coming out of college is sort of setting the tone um, of pop culture, of the zeitgeist. And so there's this belief of, of that generation coming out that, that there's sort of this fierce individualism, that we don't need some romantic relationship to complete us, to fulfill us. Um, and, and this is just one quote from her book out of, you know, many possible ones. This is one student and what she says. I'm very glad I never got into a relationship before because I feel like I was able to develop into my own person and be independent. I tried to avoid building up emotional reliance on other people. I know a lot of people who started dating really, really young and became emotionally reliant on their boyfriend or girlfriend. Now they have to seek that and they can't stay single. You might resonate with this, right? This is sort of this idea right now that this commitment toward individualism as an indicator of maturity, that I don't need someone to complete me, I'm good myself. Now there's also sort of present in that, she points out, this obsession with safety. Because we live in a generation with endless choices, we're all terrified of making the wrong choice. And we all believe that there is a right choice to be made. As Leslie Bell, the psychologist, sort of sums up this idea, is that there's this idea that identity is built independent of relationships, not within them. So there's this fear of intimacy and this desire, um, this belief that if I want to know who I really am, if I want to discover myself and discover my strength, it's not going to come through a relationship. At least that's what's being said. That's the public uh, belief. And, and, and apparently this was summed up for me in which I, I went to my wife, Anna, and I was like, man, I'm so glad I don't have to date anymore. <laughs> but um, this was summed up to me uh, from an article on Mike.com about the, the, this is the quintessential relationship status right now. Maybe you know it. Uh, apparently it's called the dating partner. Does that resonate with anyone, the dating partner? I don't know. So this is what they said about the dating partner. It's a hybrid between very loose friendships, if you know what I'm saying, and a committed relationship. And the metaphor that was used is when you get sick and you need soup. So the article says if you get sick, uh, a, a loose relationship, friends with benefits type thing, they're not going to bring you soup. A committed relationship, they're going to make you homemade soup which I laughed because I thought, just wait till you get married and you're gonna go all the way back to the beginning. Like, babe, you good? All right, you're good. Let me know if you need anything. Just holler at me. But apparently a dating partner, a dating partner, if you get sick, will drop off a can of soup, but only if they didn't already have plants, which is very chivalrous of them. So there's this belief, right? I say this romantic relationships make me whole. And you're like, that's not me. But here's what Twinge also found out. This is all bluster and all rhetoric. <laughs> because when she offered private surveys to, to a huge sample of people, of students and young adults, when she offered private surveys, over 75% of them, of this young generation, over 75% said they want a committed, loving relationship in the next year. In the next year. <laughs> 
And in 2016, which need I remind you, there was a lot that happened in 2016. Brexit, Syrian refugees crisis, Zika. Oh yeah, and the US elections that surprised all of us. In 2016, the most read article on New York Times is why you will marry the wrong person. <laughs> Guys, Google doesn't lie, all right? <laughs> if you looked at my Google, you'd say Russell Joyce, pastor, husband, Manchester United fan, and chiropractic video enthusiast. <laughs> I love to see the backs pop. I'm sorry, I do. It's all a lie, and as it's summed up by one student, this is what he wrote, everyone wants love and no one wants to admit it. Okay, so let's just sort of cut that over there. Leave that over here. Everyone wants love and no one wants to admit it. Now let's enter in some honesty and some truth. There is something really beautiful about committed romantic relationships and in a society that seems to push on us, pursue your careers, pursue your self-discovery, pursue yourself, and yet, Secretly, our hearts are saying, I kind of want a romantic relationship. I want something committed. There is something really beautiful about that. And the Bible explains that. At the very beginning of the creation story, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And he rested on the seventh. And on the sixth day, he creates humans. And humans are the culmination of his masterpiece. And he creates them to interact in their world as God interacts with his own. However, when he creates the first human, which we call Adam, but that Hebrew word Adam is actually better uh, translated as just the human. When he creates the human, he realizes that it's alone. It doesn't have a mate. It doesn't have a partner. And so it's a long story, but essentially he causes the human to fall asleep and he removes a rib and he fashions that rib into Eve, a partner. And when the human sees her, when Adam sees her, he, he sings a song. He gets so excited. He's like, ah, at last. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for out of man she was taken. It's this beautiful story. And then the entire story is sort of summed up with this one statement in Genesis 2. It reads, therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Such a wonderful idea. The family unit has always been the building block of the human species. Almost like the, the arbiter between the heavens and a healthy functioning earth. And again, to go back to our theology lesson, if God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is love. It's a, I mean, I don't want to defend it, but I just want to sort of suggest it. Could we not say instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God is Father, Mother, and Child? The family unit, the building block. And the church over the last 2,000 years has always held that marriage is a sacrament, which is another fancy word, that basically a sacrament is when God uses something physical to explain some spiritual truth, some spiritual reality. So marriage is a physical thing that God is using to explain something about his character, about his love, about his truth, about his justice, about his mercy. And so there's this incredibly profound and supernatural idea that when we leave father and mother and cling to another, 
that we become one flesh and we can potentially be naked and unashamed, which anyone who's been in relationships before, and we, we all have, that is so hard, whether it's romantic or not, to be naked before another person. And I'm not just talking about physically naked. I'm talking about emotionally naked, mentally naked, to actually uncover ourselves and feel no shame. That's a beautiful idea. But there is a difference between celebrating marriage and believing that romantic relationships will make us whole. And that's what I want to address. First, what do I mean when I say whole? If you were with us last week, we, we, we brought up a distinction between religion with a capital R and religion with a lowercase r. And that comes from David Zoll. And what he says in this is religion with a capital R are like all the major faiths. Uh, the robes, the sacraments, the liturgies, all of that. But religion with the lowercase r is something that is in every single human being. And it's essentially the desire to answer the question, why do I exist? Why do I exist? Why do you live? You have an answer to that, whether you know it or not, whether you've articulated it or not. And whatever your answer to that is, is your religion. I exist to have a family. I exist to succeed in my career. I exist to live a fun life. Whatever it is, that is your controlling story that is guiding your life. That is your God. As David Foster Wallace says, everybody worships. Everyone has a religion, whether it's one of the major faiths or not, whether it's God or not, or as G.K. Chesterton puts so perfectly, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing, he worships anything. So in one instance, what I'm suggesting today is that one of those answers, when, when we stopped in our modern society to, uh, to worship God, one of the ways we answered this, I exist to have a romantic relationship. I exist to have a love interest, a partner. And this has been said by many people, most beautifully by a man named Ernst Becker, who wrote The Denial of Death. And he talks about, in this book, apocalyptic romance. Apocalyptic romance. And the idea is that when society stops looking to God as the answer for why I exist, we look to other things. And one of the first would be a romantic partner, which makes sense because romance is premised on love and God is love. So it seems like a very quick jump. And if you even think about the language we use to describe falling in love, doesn't it feel very apocalyptic, right? They kiss and sparks fly. They, they held hands and the stars fell from the sky. Like it's a full-on apocalypse happening. <laughs> so it's apocalyptic, divine, supernatural language. And I'm going to read a very long uh, chunk of quotes that just sort of gets a little of the idea and just see if some of it resonates with you. When we answer the question, why do I exist? I exist for romance. I exist to find someone who makes me whole. This is what he says. Modern man, by rejecting God, edged himself into an impossible situation. He still needed to feel that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to be specially good for something truly special. Also, he still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and in gratitude. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? 
one of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. He fixed this urge onto another person in the form of a love object. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. Spirituality, which once referred to another dimension of things, is now brought down to this earth and given form in another individual human being. Modern man's dependency on the love partner then is a result of the loss of spiritual ideologies. If you don't have a God in heaven, an invisible dimension that justifies the visible one, then you take what is nearest at hand and work out your problems on that. But sex, or just say romantic relationships, is a disappointing answer to life's riddle. And if we pretend that it is an adequate one, we are lying both to ourselves and to our children. When you confuse personal love and cosmic heroism, which when he says cosmic heroism, he means the need to feel like our life matters, to feel like there's some cosmic heroic purpose for our existence. When you confuse personal love and cosmic heroism, you are bound to fail in both spheres. And this double failure is what produces the sense of utter despair that we see in modern man. No wonder. How can a human being be a God-like everything to another. No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood, and the attempt has to take its toll in some way on both parties. If your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. This is the reason for so much bitterness, for shortness of temper and recrimination in our daily family lives. We get back a reflection from our loved objects that is less than the grandeur and perfection that we need to nourish ourselves. We feel diminished by their human shortcomings. Our interiors feel empty or anguished, our lives valueless when we see the inevitable shallowness of the world expressed through the human beings in it. For this reason too, we often attack loved ones and try to bring them down to size. We see that our gods have clay feet. We see that our gods have failed us. And so we must hack away at them in order to save ourselves, to deflate the unreal overinvestment that we have made in them. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know that our life has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through their love. Needless to say, human partners cannot do this. The lover does not dispense cosmic heroism. He cannot give absolution in his own name. Redemption can only come from outside the individual. Why do we do this? Why do we believe that our romantic relationships make us whole? And we all do. Single, dating, married. We all have something within us that wants to project God, Godhood, divinity, spirituality on our love interest and say, complete me. Make me whole. Make my life matter. We do this because we want to know that our failures aren't final. We already know we're not enough. We already know how broken and imperfect we are. But is that okay, we're wondering. Is there someone or something that can make us enough, that can make us whole? Is there someone who can hold and handle and fill the infinite weight of our hearts and our souls? 
And if you've ever had this experience, you start dating someone and sparks do fly. It is infused, charged with this supernatural energy because there's mystery, there's excitement. You see all the good things and you wonder, oh, is it them? Are they the savior? And then you keep dating and you keep dating and you see more of them and you see more of them and you see more of yourself. And then at some point, you realize that it's not them. That, that sense of, of perhaps they could hold the weight of your imperfections and brokenness. They can't do it. That they are a human being just like you. And then we attack our loved ones because we feel betrayed by them. And they didn't do anything. We projected this onto them. Which is why we attack those closest to us. Those we love most. It's not because of anything they're doing. It's because we are putting a burden on their shoulders that they can't possibly bear. And we're mad when they fail at it. We're mad when a human acts like a human because you're supposed to be my savior. You're supposed to make the aloneness go away. Why aren't you making the loneliness go away? And we attack them because our gods have clay feet, as Becker says. We do all of this because we're all looking for God. We do all of this because there is an impulse in us for redemption, justification, absolution. We're looking for God. As Esther Perel writes, who's a a marriage um, counselor, she says, we come to one person and we say, give me belonging and give me identity and give me continuity, but also give me transcendence and mystery and all, all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise. (laughs) Anyone able to uh, put those on your resume? I certainly can't. And one of the saddest and potentially most liberating days in a romantic relationship or a marriage is when you finally realize that this person you're married to is just as broken and as lost as you. And you give up trying to force that cosmic heroism onto them. But here's my question. We might hear that and be like, I I kind of agree. I'll probably still do it, but I agree. I see it. What about Genesis? What about the promise of God in Genesis? Because we read in the very beginning that he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They will become whole. There's almost like an intrinsic promise in this of wholeness and completion and fullness. And I'm saying that the lie is that romantic relationships make us whole. Well, what's going on in this? Well, at the heart of the Christian faith, is the belief that our human souls are far weightier and are far more value and have needs that nothing in this world can satisfy. Not romance, not jobs, not, not family situations, nothing. And maybe we taste for a moment something that satisfies it, but it never lasts. It never lasts. And God starts to reveal himself to the world because the, the promise, the truth, is that what our hearts are made for, what our first love is made for is him. That our creator is the only thing that satisfies that infinite weight. All those, that list, that resume of things that Peril talks about, God has the only resume that can do all of those things. And he starts to reveal himself. And then Jesus steps onto the scene. And Jesus, we're told, 
is that God, is the ground of being in the flesh. Jesus is perfect relationship. And you might say, well, I'm not so sure about that. That's fine. But look at the historical record. When you read his story, you realize there has never been another life like this one. You just feel it. And all the major faiths attribute that. They have to make sense of it. There's never been another life like Jesus's. And the idea is that he is in perfect relationship. He is perfect human wholeness. And yet, let me point out, Jesus was not married. And so far as we know, he never dated. So he was obviously perfectly humanly whole without a love interest. What is going on? When Jesus would answer the question, why do I exist? The religious impulse, his answer would be something like this. I exist to be loved by God and to love God. And I exist to epitomize God's love for the world in pure self-sacrifice. Jesus is crucified, he's raised, and then he gives his presence, his spirit, to live with his people. That's the birth of the church. And the church, that's us in this room. We are a group of people who love Jesus and want to place the full weight of our life's purpose into our relationship with him and with God through him. One of my favorite descriptions of Christians, it's actually the first description of Christians, of Jesus followers, outside of the Bible. It came from a guy named Josephus in 50 CE, 50 AD, so about 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And how he described Christians is like this. He said, they are those who loved him at the first and did not forsake their affection of him. So the idea in this space, what I'm saying is that your heart is made for wholeness, but it won't come through another human being. It will only come through God who we see that invitation in Jesus. But then what do we do with Genesis? What do we do with that promise that the father, the, 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 the son leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife and they become one flesh? Well, Paul is a church planter and he's writing about this. He's, he's writing to these churches who are gathered around their love of Jesus. And in one of them, to the, uh, the, a letter to the church in Ephesus, he's giving advice to married Christians. And he's like helping them out of how to live as married partners, as romantic partners, while still having Jesus first. And he quotes our passage. He quotes Genesis. And he says, in the middle of his advice, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. And I'm talking about Christ in the church. The Trinity is the family. And yet Jesus left father and mother, one might say. Left the intimacy of the Godhead and came to earth to be united with us, his bride, the church. Friends, there is a romantic relationship, a relationship of intimacy that will make you whole. And it's found in this group of people making themselves available to God through Jesus. The power in this, this idea, that within this group, we can be naked and unashamed before God 
and before each other. The power of this idea is that it makes room for every sort of relationship status among us. Single, married, celibate, gay, straight. The love that can hold the weight of your heart. The love that can give you all of those things that you're looking for. That can give you the cosmic heroism. That can give the meaning to your life that you're looking for, that you know exists, but you don't know where it is. The love that can give you that, the relationship that makes you whole is with God through his son. That's it. And then it opens up this idea of what family could possibly mean so that no one is excluded from this new reality. And so that marriage can actually be a sacrament, can be a sign of a spiritual reality. That when we look at two married people who are trying to love each other as Christ loves the church, that we can hold them to this. We have an idea, but they're not that. They're not Christ in the church. It's only Christ in the church, which is the most real, that holds the full weight. They are just a lesser sign of that reality. And so what does that mean for us? And with that, I'm going to invite the band back up and close. Well, it means that there's a way forward for all of us. So for the single in the room, hear me. It is so okay to want a romantic relationship. It is so okay to want to get married. You don't have to hide that. That is a good thing. It's hardwired in us. It's good. But recognize as much as you can and let us as the people help each other recognize that it won't give you the sense of satisfaction that you're looking for. It won't make the loneliness go away. It won't. That will only come from God. So turn your heart to God first and with all of our help, find that wholeness which he promises so that you don't put the weight of that onto someone else. Let him answer the question of why you exist. And to the married in the room, the purpose of your marriage is for your refinement. Because going back to that New York Times article, uh, you don't marry the right person. Because the right person in that sense, in the full sense of wholeness, the right person is only God. That is the one who fulfills our hearts. So you don't marry the right person. It's impossible. And as soon as you think you've married the right person, you'd learn you haven't. So stop putting the weight of that cosmic heroism. Stop putting the weight of your expectations on your spouse. Turn it to God. Give it to him. Let him be who he says he is. And then perhaps it might remove a veil from your eyes and allow you to see your spouse as they are, a human being, just as jacked up, just as in need of hope as you. To the divorced and the celibate in the room, this does not define you. It can't answer the question of why do you exist? What is your life's purpose? You exist to know God. You exist to be loved by God. Wholeness is there. Therefore, everything else that is good does not define you, won't fulfill you, and everything else that is tragic can't destroy you because the, the reason for your being is in God. 
And you know what the irony in all of this is, guys? We talked about earlier that everyone wants to give off this like sexy individualistic persona. Like, I don't need someone, I'm good. The irony is that when we actually turn our hearts to God, we become that person. <laughs> we say we are good. And yes, my heart still would love to be with someone or, or yes, I still enjoy being married, but I don't put the weight of my soul onto that because it cannot fulfill me and make me whole. There is one who can make me whole and it's through God's gift of his son, Jesus, who left the father and mother and came to earth to be united with us, his bride. And to conclude, as David Zoll writes, to be sure even the most well-matched partner will let us down, and we them. Another person cannot give us what we need, and much of our dissatisfaction stems from the fact that we continue to believe that they can and should. But I cannot help but wonder, what would it look like to believe someone already has? What would it look like to believe that someone already has given you what you need? It would change everything. Pray with me. Lord, I lift up every heart in this room and I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know um, their relationship status. I don't know if their marriage is on the rocks. I don't know if they're single and in their room they're crying, wondering why they haven't found someone yet. I don't know if they're divorced and they're wondering what's the next step for them. I don't know, God. I don't know where they are, but you do. And I just pray that right now that they would hold up the pain of their hearts that wants a romantic relationship or, or and, and either it's not coming in their spouse or they can't find someone, would they hold up the pain in their hearts to you and ask that you make them whole? Ask that you give them what you promise you will give them. That your love is the only love that can hold the full weight of them. And when they know themselves as loved by you, they will be free. They will be free. Would they be able to cry to you today, God? Would they be able to be naked and unashamed with you? Could they be in your presence and give you everything that's in their hearts, good, bad, and ugly, and know that you love them so deeply that you are the love that lasts? We need you, God. It's in your name. Would you stand? We're gonna sing a little bit of a song we sang earlier to remind our hearts of this truth. And as we do, would you hold nothing back from God who sees you, loves you, and wants to fulfill you?
To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week. <laughs>